парой шли вдвоем, а фонарики горели. И при виде их на момент прийти, и сердца наши замляли. Hello and welcome to the SRB podcast, where in each episode we discuss Eurasian politics, culture, and history. As always, I'm your host, Sean Guillory. The SRB podcast is sponsored by the Center for Russian, East European, and Eurasian Studies at the University of Pittsburgh and members of the SRB Table of Ranks, who give monthly contributions from anywhere between $5 to $25. If you'd like to support this podcast, go to my Patreon page at patreon.com slash Sean'sRussiaBlog or to the podcast website, srbpodcast.org, and hit that Patreon button and join the Table of Ranks. After Stalin's death in 1953, a torrent of Western novels, films, and paintings invaded Soviet streets and homes. Translated into a Soviet context, Western artists took on new roles. Pablo Picasso became a political rabble-rouser. Rockwell Kent, a quintessential American painter. Eric Remarque and Ernest Hemingway turned into teachers of love and courage under fire. J.D. Salinger and Giuseppe DeSantis were saviors from Soviet cliches. Imported novels challenged fundamental tenets of Soviet ethics, while modernist paintings tested deep-seated notions of culture. Western films were eroticized even before viewers took their seats. My guest, Eleanor Gilbert, explores the pleasure, longing, humiliation, and anger that Soviet citizens felt as they found themselves in the midst of this cross-cultural encounter. Her main protagonists are small-town teachers daydreaming of faraway places, college students vicariously discovering a wider world, and factory engineers striving for self-improvement. Their story is one where they invested Western imports with political and personal significance, transforming foreign texts into intimate belongings. Eleanor Gilbert is an assistant professor of history at the University of Chicago. Her new book is To See Paris and Die, The Soviet Lives of Western Culture, published by Harvard University Press. Here's Eleanor Gilbert. Um, so you, you have this new book, uh, To See Paris and Die, The Soviet Lives of Western Culture. And I want to ask you about the title because sometimes I'm, I'm interested in why people use certain titles. And, and this one's a particular one, interesting one because I assume it's a quote from some one of your sources, yes? Well, it isn't exactly a quote, uh, a quote from – it isn't a quote from a source I can identify. Uh, the origin of the line is ambiguous to me, although it isn't to many other people. The line is usually attributed in a cliched kind of way to – um, Ilya Edinburgh and to his book uh, My Paris from 1931. It's a uh, it's a book of small kind of a small format book. It's a collection of his photographs uh, of Parisian streets and park benches, cafe tables, various people, uh, you know, the homeless, aging women, beauty and youth are transient, um, and with small you know small commentary, uh, short uh, short texts. Um, so, uh, uh, you know, usually, usually the attribution uh, of the quote um, is to Ehrenberg. Um, the the line doesn't come from any particular source. It's a it's a set expression. It's an idiom uh, 
um, in Russian, and, and uh, it, it's a paraphrase of to see Naples and die, which received common currency after Goethe had used it in his Italian travelogues. Um, the more immediate kind of context, uh, or in a more immediate, you know, for our purposes, context than, than Goethe, um, the, the phrase was used as a title of a, of a film uh, after the Soviet Union disintegrated. There are several prominent films that considered or reconsidered the place of the Western world and uh, the Western world and Paris specifically in Soviet lives. And one of these films was um, Alexander Proshkin's to see Paris and die from, um, I think, 1992 or 93. Uh, it, somehow 92 is stuck in my mind. Uh, maybe we should check on that. Um, and this film is a story of a woman, uh, Eliana, and her grown-up musician son. They live in a communal apartment with all sorts of unpleasant characters, um, eavesdropping and spying on the intimate life of others. Um, not really to report people to the authorities, although that's always a possibility and a fear, but just out of sort of the voyeuristic pleasure, because they can. Um, in the time period of the 1960s, um, Eliana, the main protagonist, has a past to hide and the Jewish nationality to hide too, and uh, hide both. She must, um, because she is determined at all costs to have her uh, her son uh, included in a delegation of Soviet musicians going to Paris to perform. Um, and no moral compromise is too grave for this goal. So when she thinks the, the goal is unreachable, uh, when all her plans seem to, to have collapsed, uh, she dies by her own hand having closed doors and, and windows and opened the gifts. Um, the phrase really stands sort of for life's ultimate fulfillment, and it also has this sort of sense of final fight. Fatality and uh, fatality and finality to it, and, and that, that is that there is nothing left to experience um, after seeing Paris, and you might as you might as well die because uh, there are you know there there aren't any other experiences that are that are left that could actually best uh, that experience that the fulfillment of that particular longing. And how do what is it? What is this this phrase capture your book for a title? The reason I thought it's so apt for my book's title is that I tried to convey this longing. I tried to convey the unreachability and the, the intensity of emotional investment and the desire that that impossibility, uh, that unreachability had sustained over decades. But I also tried to convey the tragedy upon that desire's fulfillment. Um, and that's why I, I chose it. And is the desire in the sense that for most people who, since your your book is about Western culture and its consumption in the post-war period in the Soviet Union, is that kind of desire and unfulfilled desire because a lot of the consumption of the West is, is you have to imagine it, like the people who are consuming this culture, they, they can't travel to the West, most of them. Uh, only a very, very small few are allowed, prominent people. So is this supposed to capture this kind of, the, the fact that the West is imagine, imagined in their consumption? Um, it's, 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 of course, imagined. Uh, it's also very real. It has specific, uh, it has a specific set of, uh, of places, of images, of objects, um, photographs. I mean, it, it's, it is a work of imagination to... Uh, uh, to claim this this space, but it is also, but there are also things in circulation in the Soviet Union um, that provide the building blocks uh, for that kind of imagining. Uh, anything from photographs of film stars um, that uh, the Soviet the Soviet publishing industry would put out to books, uh, to films, um, 
uh, to uh, various domestic pro products about the West uh, and the way that uh, people use them to put together um, a somewhat a coherent but also a very fragmentary uh, and um, unfinished product uh, that they could claim as their own. Um, so it, that, and, and indeed, indeed, of course, you're right that um, for the majority of the majority of the population had no um, no way to to experience going abroad firsthand, um, uh, and that and, and that in part that it, the the origins of the tragedy when that did become a, a, a possibility, um, the majority of the population experienced uh, and took for granted almost closed borders, uh, and um, and it took particular kind of imaginative work, particular kinds of readings and particular kind of reconstruction uh, to create a picture of what was available in in the Soviet public domain. Um, so that's the uh, kind of the the desire and the investment that I'm talking. So I, I want to have you paint the context for for your your study, because a lot of your story takes place during the thaw. And, and you note that uh, Western culture you know, it, it, it enters a lot during the thaw, more than before, and it never goes away after the thaw. It remains as part of Soviet life. So t talk about what the thaw is and how you understand this moment of post-war Soviet history. I try my best to locate the Thawyer opening to the West in um, this much longer trajectory of Westernization uh, in Russia. Um, it's not an isolated moment for me, but 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 I think it's uh, it's a unique moment. It's distinguished by several features from any other period of um, of Westernization. Um, there are several consistent points uh, that we would find uh, in other such moments of um, of intense Western importation, and and of course the translation, unsurprisingly, is central to all these endeavors. That political reforms, the reformist tradition in Russia over centuries, was closely connected to openness. Uh, and to closedness to Western cultural presence. Um, you'd find in any uh, such intense period of Westernization that xenophobia and fear in foreigners uh, went hand in hand with openness. Uh, both occurred simultaneously rather than being opposite. Um, the Thaw, of course, inherited uh, uh, ideological positions from the revolutionary 1920s and also institutions uh, that had been established or that had been developed in the 19th, established in the 20s and, and developed kind of that came to their full expression in the 1930s. Um, the reason I think the thaw is unique and remarkable in this history, um, that I, I think it actually altered the vector of the history of Westernization in Russia, um, is, uh, is because the, this is the first moment uh, of Westernization on a mass scale. Um, I think the Westernization of the 50s and 60s defined as well a tendency that continues to this very day. And and I think um, I think you correctly state one of the uh, one of the uh, arguments, one of the conclusions in the book, and that is that um, the process that started in the mid 1950s never really stops uh, and persists all the way until the end of the Soviet Union. Um, so in many ways, I think the thought defined a tendency that continues to this day, and that is the centrality of consumer objects to Westernization, the new media and technologies as channels of Western culture, this very broad distribution in a social sense where Westernization is no longer a prerogative of the elite, 
Um, and of course, things like tourism, processes like tourism as one of the formative aspects of Westernization. Um, so I, I, the, the um, reason that the 50s and 60s uh, as, a, as one of the kind of constitutive moments of uh, the history of Westernization in Russia is so interesting is that it becomes a mass phenomenon. Um, it's no longer the cultural elite but rather broad strata of the population. Um, these are people who turn on the radio in 1954, as early as 1954, then in 1956 again, and they hear Yves Montan on the radio. Um, a little later, they turn on the radio and, and they hear Ilya Ehrenberg's lectures about the Impressionists, whom they had never seen before and have no idea what he's talking about. Um, and they're interested and, and their curiosity is piqued and they want to know more. Um, often these are teachers, provincial teachers, these are agronomists, these are engineers all across the, the Soviet Union. Um, very often I'm talking about I'm talking about the capitals, but also provincial towns, sometimes new towns that are being built. Uh, these are very often dusty settlements where water pipes are just being laid, but there is a movie theater that, that was already built. Um, and I, I, you know, I don't know another moment of such democratization and popularization of Western culture of so broad a distribution. Um, the um, among the reasons I should say the among, among the reasons for this uh, for the kind of this, the social and geographic broadness or wide, wide the, the widespread of of of, uh, of this phenomenon is the Soviet education uh, and the way that people were assigned to jobs after graduation all across the Soviet Union. Uh, among the reasons, I think, is the Soviet cultural product project itself, uh, founded on the idea of classics for the masses. Um, among the reasons is the new media uh, and radio and television play a huge television later, uh, radio and cinema in the 50s and 60s. Um, they play a huge role in the distribution of Western culture. And for all these reasons that, that you know, I think this, the, the thaw is a special moment. But that's not, that's not all. For this moment, overlaps and not accidentally with a uh, re-evaluation of Soviet history and Soviet society, with the re-evaluation of socialist realism, of Soviet aesthetic, of class morality, of the very language of you know, politics, literature, uh, visual languages, it's of emotional language. Um, and it is into this context that Russian translations of Western texts and films arrive, um, where they begin to live the Soviet life, begin to change under the impact of the Soviet life, and in turn they uh, they impact this revelation of values and, and you know when did something like this on so broad a scale happen before. So uh, for me it's it's a unique moment. Let me let me ask you about translation. Um, because this is a this is a key analytical frame for you, but it's also a key, you know, mechanism in which this culture is transformed and transmitted to this broad democratization of consumption. Um, so talk, talk a bit about translation as, as a concept for you, as an analytical concept, but also translation as it was practiced in this period that's so formative. So uh, you're you're absolutely right. It's a translation, kind of in in a very broad sense, is um, is the key paradigm or is the key framework um, in this book. Um, and uh, first and foremost, as as you said, it's 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 a mechanism of transfer into another context. Uh, it's the it's um, crucial for the process of naturalization. Um, for me, translation highlights the channels and that you know the the process of carrying over. Right, uh, the channels of transfer. Um, when I was getting ready to go to the archives 
to do this to do this project uh, many years ago. I wasn't really planning to write about translation. Um, I, you know, in my original vision, there's a lot about my original vision had kind of the this this the centerpiece of my original vision was about cultural diplomacy, um, and that is still there. There's a, you know about a, a third of the book is uh, is about cultural diplomacy, but. Um, after working in the archives, I wanted to find something that would allow me to convey an active, creative role of the receiving context that I was observing in the archives, that would allow me to convey the work of people like Aaron Work or, um, you know, the, the translator or one of the translators and the main interpreters of Hemingway, Von Kashkin, um, that would allow me to convey uh, the the place uh, and he is not really in the book, but he is in my other work of somebody like Sergei Brasov, uh, who brings a recording um, uh, of Yves Montan from his trip to Paris, uh, and uh, and has his way, you, you know, in designing a program, uh, puts it on the airwaves. It um, resonates across the Soviet Union, on the, over the radio, and he interprets and comments and translates the songs. Um, so I wanted to capture that creative role of the receiving context. And I was uh, I was sort of tired of the usual concepts about the imitative nature of Russian culture, about kind of derivativeness, original and copy. Um, and this is kind of in these concepts that creative work that I was observing in the in the archives gets uh, completely lost and, and entire layers of meanings that get invested uh, into the in the by the new context into these imports uh, get also right and it, it also create it also gives the impression of a passive consumption right that that Russian Russians are just receivers of culture from the West and you know the best they can do is mimic it right right and 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 translation allows me to reinstate that very active role right that creative re role of re uh, or recreate you know uh, uh, this sort of um, creation and recreation in the new context and and to reinstate the meanings that uh, that are then inbuilt or imparted uh, to these imports in the process of carrying them across linguistic and geopolitical borders, where of course they assume new connotations and new um, in intonations, and and they lose some of their original, uh, you know, original meanings from their own domestic context. So you talk about that this, this then the process of translation and how it how it deterritorializes a, a piece of culture that say comes from France and then re-territorializes it in a Soviet context. How does translation and how it's done and practiced in the Soviet Union uh, achieve that? You know, can you give some examples? Well, for one, I, I should mention that I look at a number of, of uh, creative activities around translation that is not only work with texts, um, it's also work with images, um, it's, um, it's interpretive work when it comes to paintings, it's um, dubbing, uh, a little bit of subtitling that I talk about, but mainly dubbing because the Soviet Union was a, a dubbing culture uh, when it comes to cinematic translations. Um, so it, I, I'm not just working with, with written text, but with a variety of different, that's why I think the translation is a, is a broad, um, a, a broad uh, concept. Um, in terms of literary texts, um, by the mid 50s, Soviet translation, uh, you know, the, the way people have written about translation of written texts over centuries, there are two, basically, two dominant ways, two dominant ways of translating and two dominant ways of writing about it. Uh, and one of them is about, um, is, is writing and doing uh, 
foreignizing translations that retain a, uh, um, something of the original sense of foreignness. Um, and another way of, of doing it is domesticating translations um, that erase foreignness uh, completely. By the mid-50s, Soviet translation had come to be dominated by people who espoused domesticating translation, uh, who uh, believed there is no untranslatable text and no untranslatable experience, and who believed that translation should be, as they put it time and again, translation should be a fact of Russian literature, uh, and who wanted to recreate the kind of reading experiences that the readers of the original had had in their time and place, for uh, Soviet Russian-speaking readers. That kind of translation practice emerged uh, in two stages, uh, uh, first in the 1930s, then in the late 40s and early 50s. Uh, in the 1930s, foreignizing translations, of which there were many in the 1920s, uh, foreignizer, foreignizing translations were um, berated for uh, being socially exclusive, um, and again, we're back to that Soviet project of cultural accessibility of classics for the masses, uh, of being socially exclusive, of being uh, elitist and snobbish. You know, this the sense that, you know, I, we, we relish the foreignness of the text and we preserve certain, uh, you, you know, elements to give that away um, and readers can appreciate that. Uh, so the argument was that, no, you know, a certain kind of reader, uh, an elite, a, a elite uh, reader, a reader with, you know, an intellectual, a reader with education can appreciate it. Uh, but our translation is geared toward a mass reader and a mass reader uh, would be lost in that kind of translation. In the late 40s and early 50s, another kind of charge, another kind of argument was added uh, to this charge of social snobbery, and that is that foreignizing translations are unpatriotic, are cosmopolitan, um, that, that in retaining certain foreign elements, they betray uh, Russian language and Russian literature, ultimately. And uh, some of the people who, who are creating the translations that I'm discussing in the book uh, had come of age in the 1930s, participated in those critical battles, but also political battles of the mid-1930s and the late 1940s and early 50s. So that's where the particular kind of Soviet translation, uh, the Soviet translation school, as, it, as they like to call it, comes into uh, play. Now, one of the questions that, that you asked is to give some examples of sort of what happens when, you know, some of the imports cross Soviet borders. One of the things that I found so, so interesting uh, and I thought was curious is how Soviet life brought together what we would consider as incompatible aesthetic phenomenon, um, brought together characters who had very little in common. So I have um, certain pairs of people or aesthetic uh, movements, uh, such as Picasso and Rockwell Kant or Hemingway and Remark, um, or um, Italian neorealists neo and uh, the French historical drama. In the West, you know, uh, you'd rarely put somebody like Asan Rockwell Kent in the same line. In Soviet culture, they were so deeply interrelated. Uh, the modernist canon to which some of these uh, artists and writers belonged was entirely non-canonical for Soviet audiences. Um, and translation created its own canon stylistically and chronologically very uh, eclectic. You know, to give you to give you an example, in interwar Europe, uh, remarks novels uh, were read for bitter pacifism, and and um, we, for us uh, today, he's the author of one book. We barely know that he wrote very many. Uh, he's the author of All Quiet on the Western Front, and that's the context in which we, um, 
you know, those of us who know his name at all uh, know his, his name. Uh, I read him in the United States in uh, high school, um, specifically for as a commentary on, on the war, uh, on its senselessness and meaninglessness, and uh, for that bitter pacifism. In the Soviet context, though that of course was there, but other themes were important, uh, and perhaps even more important. Um, other themes like the fate of a lone man, like the salvation that we find in love and friendship. Um, or, you know, if you take Italian neorealist cinema and, and French historical drama, you know, with costumes and fencing, right, and then kind of the theatrical staging of it all, um, these are so completely opposing, uh, opposing aesthetic phenomenon. But uh, Soviet viewers looked for other things, and in both kinds of aesthetic movements, they found passion and intimacy and love and torment. Um, so uh, this is uh, how um, things get put together and reinterpreted in, in the Soviet context. Now, one of the key events for that you, you open your study with is the 6th International Youth Festival in 1957. And, and this seems like a really key moment. Several historians have, have looked at it from a variety of different angles. Um, what was this festival and why was it so significant? It, it, is, it is, of course, one of the central events of, of the thaw. Um, for different historians, I think it means different things. For me, the festival was the Soviet Union's first mega event, mega event in the sense that uh, that that is not to say the Soviet Union had not had international events before. Uh, it did, but those were leftist events. Um, this is the first event uh, that begins sort of the transformation of Moscow from a, a city of international leftist events to a city of mega events. Um, the youth festival invited foreigners from across the world, uh, young foreigners, and uh, that sort of youth was a open to interpretation. There were some rather middle-aged people in various delegations uh, about which Soviet uh, Soviet overseers who were there to report on them complained. Uh, but uh, be that as, as it may, there were about 34,000 foreigners um, in two weeks of cultural celebrations, athletic events, performances, uh, and political and cultural debate. In the book, the festival serves as a structural center because it, it kind of features all the threads that I'm uh, developing in the subsequent uh, chapters. I see the festival first and foremost as a literary invention, this incredible invention on paper before, you know, various plans and figures and pictures come alive in the street. They were all imagined uh, by festival planners and they're narrated on paper. Um, I see it as a utopian project in search of an ideal language, and that is a universal language. Uh, and in the 1950s, this language was the language of culture. In fact, uh, you know, there are lots of dictionaries published for the festival, lots of language instruction. But but it's important, I think, to say that uh, linguistic fluency was suspect. When you look at kind of internal documents, linguistic fluency was sus suspect. Uh, and people, foreigners who were fluent in Russian, were surveilled more so than other foreigners, were followed in the streets more so than other foreigners. The language that they that the, they really, the festival planners really had in mind was the language of culture, of, sort of literary archetypes of painting and cinema and dance and gesture. And this is the language that the festival wanted to speak when its creators and artists, uh, planners, return time and again, and this shows up in the documents as well. So. Uh, so poignantly and also surprisingly returned time and again to the story of the Tower of Babel. Uh, and here the Tower of, of Babel completed. The other importance of the festival is like the other major initiatives of the Thaw, the festival left uh, an enduring legacy that was not eclipsed in later decades. 
the festival in some sense was a Potemkin village uh, because they were talking about central streets, they were talking about Moscow, they were talking about um, building facades, but it was more than that because so much was created in uh, brick and stone. It was meant to stay entire neighborhoods. The, the city of Moscow that we know today, entire neighborhoods were colonized uh, and buildings were, you know, little buildings were uh, raised to the ground and big buildings were uh, erected in, in their stead, uh, were colonized for the festival. Um, like other mega events, like Olympic Games, um, the festival led to substantial changes in infrastructure. Uh, one of the very important and interesting aspects about festival planning for me was that it was planned with a look, it was modeled, and the city of Moscow was modeled uh, according to uh, Olympic cities. Uh, so the recent 1956, the Olympic Games in Melbourne, and there is a, besides the athletic, athletic Soviet athletic uh, delegation in, in Melbourne participating in the Games, uh, there are also all, all sorts of bureaucrats from various ministries uh, to see how an Olympic city would look like. Um, so that Moscow was modeled uh, according to the Mel Melbourne example, um, I think is very telling. Um, I think it's very telling that architects and municipal authorities were building new movie theaters uh, modeled on uh, the grand European movie theaters and the particular model for them, the specific model that they wanted to recreate time and again was the Con Palace of Festivals. And, and finally, I think I should say one other thing is that the festival is interesting for me also because it allows us to see how the exotic becomes seamlessly integrated, this kind of this uh, uninterruptible process of re re integrating and then immediately recycling things that only recently had been uh, exotic. So we could almost kind of freeze this moment and look at how this process happens, how uh, the kind of the the remarkable uh, becomes part of the domestic interior. Um, and again, to give you an example from from um, from that moment of 50, 54 to 57 and 54 and 55, Yves Montan and Lalita Torres, uh, a singer and, a, and an Argentine actress, um, appeared in the Soviet Union for the first time. Uh, and uh, then there are repeated programs on the radio. Uh, Montan came to the Soviet Union um, at the end of 56. Uh, there were um, uh, recordings of uh, Soviet recordings with Russian texts uh, and Soviet uh, singers uh, performing the uh, the songs, uh, Lalita Torres' songs from uh, from her films. But by 1957, all of this that only two, three years earlier had been so exotic and remarkable and incredible um, uh, started to be reproduced in, in hundreds and thousands of, of copies in songbooks for the festival. And the, the, the two figures, uh, Montan and Torres, appear in uh, the plans and in you know kind of stage plans uh, and in festival internal documents, uh, bureaucratic all, all, um, almost bureaucratic documents, um, as part of of festival scripts, as if something to be ten, taken for granted, as if you know here are our own you know here are our own heroes, Montan and Lalita Torres, um, and so you could see kind of how you know something that is just so beyond you know beyond the imaginable in '55. Um, by 57, because of this sort of near constant reproduction um, in uh, in records over the radio and in songbooks, uh, becomes part of the of cityscapes and domestic domestic interiors. You know, I'm, I'm listening to some of the things you're saying, and there is this this 
effort, and, and this is, I think, part of the, the Soviet cultural project in general, is that, and, and you said this earlier about how there's no untranslatable experience. So it's this effort to put the Soviet Union as part of world culture, right? And then to, to take that world culture and then domesticate it with its own Soviet, you know, inflection uh, into Soviet society. Um, is this in a, is, how do you understand this attempt to, you know, for the Soviet Union to be part of this global culture, to enter into this global popular culture in, in the post-war period? I mean, I, I, I don't think it, it is in its sort of in its most cynical expression. I don't think it is unique to, uh, to the thought. Uh, I think the Soviet Union had always, um, or Soviet le cultural leaders had always imagined what they were building uh, as part of uh, both European and uh, European culture, and as having universal significance for the rest of the world. Um, so I, I, I don't think I don't think they are innovative in this sense. Um, they are innovative in, uh, during the thaw in a in a different kind of sense, and that is the Soviet leaders want. And they always wanted that, but now they are embarking on a different path of achieving that. They want to appeal to um, to ordinary foreigners. They want to appeal to ordinary people abroad. Uh, in the mid-50s, they are increasingly realizing that for decades they'd been preaching to the uh, converted. Um, they increasingly realized that the films, Soviet films abroad, Soviet films in Europe, Soviet films in the United States, that Soviet magazines specifically, and they had a magazine specifically produced for uh, for distribution abroad, that Soviet magazines, nobody's reading them except for a very narrow circle of people uh, associated with uh, the so-called friendship societies, that nobody is watching these Soviet films, which are often screened on the sort of in third-rate movie theaters on the outskirts of various cities or in working-class neighborhoods. And they want to be in the spotlight. They want Soviet uh, Soviet exports uh, to be in the spotlight. They want Soviet exports to be, Soviet films to be uh, screened uh, in the very center of European capitals, uh, in first-rate uh, movie theaters. And they're willing to uh, enter into uh, standard uh, practices of cultural diplomacy that they developed as they developed in the 20th century. They're willing to uh, engage with the capitalist world in uh, cultural diplomacy. They are willing to sign cultural exchange agreements. Um, and these exchange agreements, they are very formulaic. They're renewed every every few years for different countries, you know, sometimes every two years, sometimes uh, they, they have different terms. Uh, but at any rate, they quantify um, everything, everybody who goes out and everybody who comes in. Uh, they quantify everything. They're very formulaic. They're kind of really tedious to read through. But they are this scaffold. They are this structure upon which this entire edifice of Western imports is built. The innovative part during the thaw is that they want to step out of the leftist confines. And it's particularly innovative when you look at uh, not at the 1920s and 30s, but when you look at the late uh, Stalin period, at the late 40s and early 50s, um, they want to step out of those uh, communist enclaves, of those leftist uh, neighborhoods, uh, and they want to appear on the main street. They want, you know, they realize that the friendship societies and the communist party, communist parties are not reaching out to the majority of the population. Um, and they're willing to enter into bilateral exchange agreements. They're willing to receive Western imports 
uh, because they think the you know the control mechanisms are on their side, and uh, and often they're deeply mistaken about that. And they do have uh, you know formally they have far greater control mechanisms as various foreigners. Also, you know, I'm looking at this, looking for this at diplomatic negotiations, and uh, foreigners often recognize that they have uh, they you know kind of American uh, dis film distributors have so little control or have significantly less control over uh, what they can do uh, uh, with with films than than the the cultural de department of the central committee uh, and yet you know they're in some sense they miscalculate they're deeply mistaken about how much control they have but I think that is the innovative the innovative part is that they the, and this goes back to your question uh, I, I think to the heart of your question about uh, how they imagine themselves and their and Soviet culture as part of um, of Western or maybe a more global cultural uh, cultural scene, uh, they imagine themselves uh, or they want to be uh, on on Main Street. Uh, they they don't want to be far out in the outskirts. Now, now, when when many people think about Western culture and the Soviet Union, they of course think about issues of censorship and issues of access, right? And I think you've addressed the access issue quite well in the sense that in the thaw, what's really different that a breaking point. A break is that you get this massification of consumption of Western culture. But what role did censorship play in in the types of Western culture that was imported, translated, and also in some extent consumed? Well, so access of you know, of course, you're right. There is a hierarchy of access to information. This is not as as you said. This is not surprising. The surprising thing is how far and wide the officially approved cultural import circulated. And the other aspect of the hierarchy of access that's important to me is how profoundly the cultural elite is able, right, who have better access to um, to foreign imports, uh, uh, because they're able, because some of them are able to travel, and because some of them uh, know foreign languages. So how profoundly they were able to shape what got imported and how it got translated, and the people who you know, created that space of imported culture. They were not instructors from the cultural department. They were not the censors from the central administration for state secrets, Glavlit. Um, they were translators, editors, cultural mediators, and they were the ones who decided what books would reach Soviet readers. Uh, their affections and preferences had a huge impact. Um, these restrictions, the, the hierarchy of access, to restrictions on information, restrictions on travel abroad, uh, mobility beyond Soviet borders led to this heightened social significance of translation. And the stories, uh, this select uh, group of people, very narrow, small group of people, of cultural mediators told the stories, the figures, the sounds which they shared, uh, they were all the more important because of the paucity of information. Um, so it's the, the hierarchy of access, the paucity of information available to the rest of the first-hand first unmediated information available to the rest of the population gave an opportunity to several authoritative voices. They have this enormous, disproportionate influence upon the audiences. Now, the censorship, censorship was both important and not. It was important in the sense that entire genres, authors, directors were never imported to the, to the Soviet Union. So, for example, Phil Noir or Henry Miller, uh, these would have to <laughs> these would have to wait until until the very end. Um, so you know there is a there are layers and layers of of you know of books, uh, aesthetic movements, um, uh, cinematic cinematic movements, uh, images, 
uh, that never appeared. And, and this is why, why I say the translation created its own canon uh, where, you know, things would hardly in our world belong together, uh, went hand in hand and it was unsurprising and nobody had questions, uh, you know, how do you put these two figures together? It seemed natural. Um, so, in you know, entire entire layers and aesthetic movements were cut off for um, for Soviet audiences. Um, at the same time, I found censorship uh, not nearly as important as we tend to think. Uh, the movies, so for example, the movies um, that were unacceptable, as I mentioned, they were not purchased in the first place. Um, in the censorship, right, and we understand there are several understandings of censorship or several stages or processes, right? Uh, the first is what you let in and the second is what you do with it. Um, so uh, those that, things that were unacceptable were not purchased in the first place. In terms of films, the reels were simply too expensive. So when the authorities invested money, they wanted to show the films and get returns. Sometimes they used as a subtle mode of censorship, they used subtitles. They thought people would have a hard time reading text in the bottom of the screen. Um, so they, you know, they used subtitles rather than dubbed films when they didn't like something but had to buy it for diplomatic reasons. Um, sometimes the kinds of things, and this, this is constantly in the documents because it ca causes scandals, uh, the kinds of things that were supposed to be cut, uh, and usually those kinds of things are scenes of undressing, uh, accidentally, they were not. And that created time and again created a hysteria about uncut copies in circulation. Um, for literature, editors and translators knew what should and shouldn't be there. And it was often editors and translators rather than censors who carried out that subtle censorship. One other thing I should mention about censorship, and, what, and it's an interesting aspect about censorship that we rarely, uh, I think, talk about, and that is that Soviet readers and viewers expected censorship. Uh, they assumed that films were cut. They assumed that texts were tampered with. You know, sometimes they called on the censors to do their, just do your job. Why are we watching this? Um, so sometimes they invited censorship. They would write letters, you know, demanding censors to do their job. Sometimes they would write letters protesting. Sometimes any given film, there are rumors uh, that the original uncut copy with some, you know, some salacious scene is somewhere out there and, you know, you only need to find the right movie theater to see it, you know, at, at an evening, you know, an evening screening. I interviewed one one woman who um, had a modicum of English and she would uh, uh, she would go to the um, to the Rudomina library and try to read uh, to read if she could and if the book the books were, you know, available, uh, and if if she could actually get them uh, in the reading room, she tried to read and reinsert, you know, reinsert the kind of the sentences in the in the in between the lines or in the margins that she thought were missing. Um, sometimes people assumed there was censorship when there wasn't, uh, and when when things were, um, you know, precise to a fault, uh, but people people assumed that. The texts were tempered with. So this this aspect that 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 readers and viewers approached Western uh, Western imports with an expectation or with a fear of censorship, but a, either way, with an assumption that censors are at work. Um, I, I think that's an important aspect of the kind of information space that the Soviet Union was. It's interesting because it also creates, um, ironically, in in many respects a very, a much more engaged, a much more critical and analytical consumer of culture, right? Of, of regular popular culture, right? <laughs> it kind of creates a different different subject of cultural consumption. Uh, you, I think you're, you're exactly right. Um, and 
you know, you often see that in um, in letters uh, where people are describing how they read and how they cross check, uh, either because they don't know or because they suspect something is amiss with the text and they try to cross check with other texts or with critical, uh, you know, with critical articles that they're reading in the press. Uh, or, uh, you know, you often see a different kind of or different, more, indeed, more engaged, active or proactive level of engage, you know, engagement with these texts than you would if if people just passively receive this information. Um, and you also have a different kind of engagement with um, with standard Soviet texts, with Soviet propagandistic texts. And I think that's part of the tragedy that I described in the epilogue and the, the way that Western imports were read vis-a-vis -vis the, or in the context of Soviet of the Soviet press and the way the Soviet press was beginning to be read in the context of Western imports coming in. Now, what, talk a bit more about uh, what, what Soviet citizens, what are some of their general responses? What kind of culture or artifacts or pieces did they really like? What bombed? What, uh, what really became popular uh, among Soviet audiences? Um, you know, it differs in different, in different decades. We return to this time and again that this never stops. And by the 1980s, they're, you know, watching films with Pierre Richard. I mean, so it, it really it really differs depending on the decade. You know, it's hard to talk about their general response because it ranges anywhere from love to hatred. We already discussed some of some of this, and, and that is a, a more critical engagement, expectations of censorship and attempts to sort of I have two chapters, one on cinema and one on uh, art exhibitions. And there. Uh, there are two key threads in responses that stand out. Uh, one of which is for um, the movies, one of which, and it was very, you know, I was surprised that it's not something I expected. It's not something I knew. I, I didn't expect to find it. And that is the charges or the discourse around of pornography and the way that people watch Soviet films in the context of Western films and the kind of the outpouring of outrage uh, about the so-called pornography, which, of course, um, of course, wasn't. You know, the first look. I, I so I wasn't putting. I was I was watching Western imports with kind of one set of eyes. I wasn't putting it together with Soviet films um, of of the mid to late fifties, uh, which were still often production dramas uh, taking place at a construction site or um, on a collective farm. Uh, and I wasn't putting it with you know something like an Italian the Italian film Husband for Anna that has Silvana Pompanini in the lead role. And this was a really unexpected finding for me. Viewers saw in these films, um, in Soviet films, that you know, in, look, they saw pornography in both. And and both both look so innocent to our eyes today that we wouldn't notice what it is that they were picking up on. The viewers' letters that I was reading forced me to look at Soviet films differently. Um, little had changed in the mid to late 50s in film narratives or in aesthetic. You still have you know, the positive hero who re-educate re the negative one. Um, you have a, a negative hero who gains sight or kind of insight, and all of that is, is true. And that is what we see today, but that's not really what viewers back then were seeing. They were very attentive, and, and again, this was sort of startling for me, and I didn't expect it. They were very attentive, very sense, you know, the very sensitive they, in the way that they followed kind of the tiniest bearing of a shoulder or a leg. You know, some of these things take but a split second. You would have a wife in a nightgown brushing her hair before bedtime or, you know, an unmade bed or a shawl falling down and bearing a shoulder. Um, 
or a kiss that with our sensibilities, it wouldn't even register as any, anything. We wouldn't even notice. But all of this elicited such a storm of positive and negative emotions. Um, so that, you know, the eroticization of Western cinema, um, the expectations of the erotic in Western cinematic imports, um, the outrage or the desire to, to about it when some, you know, something shows up in, in Soviet films. And again, it's these things are so subtle that with our contemporary sensibilities, we would hardly notice. But um, but the kind of the keenness that they had were, and some of the letters are incredible when they in, in describing kind of the, how the audience freezes when that silk stocking falls off, and you know you have a bare leg uh, the size of of the screen, um, and how people you know just freeze in their seats and and have goosebumps. Um, so that's you know that that is that kind of the the physical the physical responses uh, and the eroticization of, of uh, cinematic imports um, that became sort of the you know the main thread of of um, audience reception that I describe in the uh, in the in the film chapter and in the art chapter um, the um, you know of course uh, the, the things the the paintings that uh, people encountered were were often unfamiliar to them. Uh, some of the art being uh, exhibited in the Soviet Union beginning in 56, 57 uh, was modernist art that people hadn't seen um, at all or for decades. Um, what was surprising to me in their reactions are these extreme passions uh, directed at really visiting touring exhibitions against paintings created in some other countries. And the main um, response that emerges from comic books at least the, the main, you know, the main thread of viewer reception of artworks that I discuss um, is the understanding of the museum as a temple, the, under, the adoration of the museum as a temple of art. And of course, that's a romantic, romantic concept. And of course, the great European museums at the end of the 19th century and the 20th century, in the early 20th century, including the Pushkin Museum in Moscow, where many of these exhibitions were taking place, were built according to neoclassical exemplars. Um, so at exhibitions of abstract art, viewers are, are lamenting the, the blasphemy, the kind of the desecration of the temple. The, the image of the temple, the, the, the trope of the temple becomes uh, very important in, in that chapter. Um, the reason it was important for me and, and why I you know, was startled by that metaphor is that the usual argument, almost kind of the stereotypical argument, is indeed that viewers didn't understand contemporary modernist art because all they'd seen were paintings of collective farm celebrations or portraits of the Right. And 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 there there are several problems with with that interpretation alone, uh, and one is that viewers themselves were very aware of this. They were aware of this keenly enough to speak about this time and again. Um, the second problem with this interpretation is that aesthetic debates it, it immediately turned into political scandals. So if you didn't understand something and and felt befuddled and you say, oh, you know, my grandson can paint this, what you would risk hearing back is a political accusation. And the, the third problem with this interpretation that people are rejected modernism um, because they hadn't seen it was that it's not at all unique to Soviet viewers or to the so-called totalitarian societies. It's very much in general a part of anti-modernist discourse. It goes back to the 60s, 70s of the 19th century to the first Impressionist exhibitions. It persists to this very day despite the fact that abstractionism 
became a normative phenomenon in the mid 20th century. So this this whole language, you know, these are dirty patches, nightmares, the, the artists are mentally deranged or they're drunk, or my six-year-old can do this. You know, you find this language in the 1950s in Paris and in New York and, and sort of not only in Moscow. Um, and so I, I tried to look beyond beyond uh, that, that argument. Uh, I was startled to see the constant reiterations of, of museum as a temple. And, uh, and of course, the fact that these exhibitions, even their, the, their desire to protect the museum uh, the, their defense of the museum against this kind of what they call the barbarian invasion, but also to defend themselves and their cultural knowledge, um, because the exhibitions raised doubts about the widespread perception of Russian cultural, Russian Soviet cultural ascendancy. They raised doubts about that fundamental Soviet project of cultural accessibility and about viewers' own hold on culture. And so one of the things you find is that they're reciting time and again in common books uh, the names of Renaissance masters, the kind of uh, the kind, the names and the kinds of stories and the kinds of paintings that they know, and they are stunned that they don't understand. You know, their incomprehension offends them most of all. Um, so that you know, you know, people are kind of rushing to unmask modernism because before before their own claims to culture can be unmasked. Unmasked. Um, those two lines: the kind of the museum as a, as a temple, the desire to defend the the, the temple of art from a barbarian invasion and the desire at the same time to defend themselves and their cultural understanding uh, emerges as the dominant um, reading of, uh, of your reception at, uh, uh, at art exhibitions in that chapter. And finally, um, you point this out early on in the book, and, and that is your story is about European cultural transmission and appropriation because it, whereas most scholars, there's a, there's a tendency to focus on Americanization Right, that both also Americanization in Europe, and also, you know, the fetishizing the American products that go or American culture that go reach the Soviet Union. But, but as you as you state, this is a very European cultural consumption. The Soviet people are consuming European culture specifically. Um, so, t- talk about this specific Europeanist your Europeanness and how it shapes your understanding of, of Soviet life in the post-war period. I, I tried to capture both, really, the European side and the uh, European imports and American imports. Um, I think you're right that, you know, I I, um, I tried to reinstate a certain part of the story of post-war exchanges and interactions more broadly uh, beyond the Soviet Union that get, gets lost in the story of Americanization. And... Um, I very much of the readings that I was doing in the early days of this project was about Americanization. I, I wasn't seeing uh, very much about inter-European interactions. I wasn't seeing um, very much. I, it, later, that literature did appear about, say, uh, co-productions. Uh, and there are a lot of French and Italian co-productions, French and Italian uh, and German, uh, you know, Federal Republic co-productions of, of films. Um, but at the time when I, you know, when I was reading, kind of doing my preliminary readings for uh, before going to the archives, I w- all I was seeing is a story of Americanization, where, if, in particular in Europe, where the Europeans are rejecting, remodeling, re- reshaping um, the the American uh, American cultural products that they receive. Um, they're not, you know, in that literature, they're not necessarily passive. Uh, they are uh, they're active cons- consumers of American um, of American both material and uh, and cultural products. Uh, but uh, there was at, at the time again, there's very little written about um, inter-European uh, exchanges and interactions and uh, and European exports. 
what happened to neorealist cinema? Where did it go? What? And of course, it had, you know, it had an impact on on cinematic traditions all across the world. Uh, and now we have books, you know, uh, it, that document uh, that document that. Um, but those those were the the first questions, you know, and maybe very naive questions that I that I had as I was um, getting ready to go to the archives. And so I tried to reinstate uh, reinstate the European part of the story and to show how it interacts and how it coexists with um, with American imports in the Soviet space. And I think it's an I, I think it's an important part. It's an important part of the story. One of the one of the books that one of the very rare books uh, that does a marvelous job uh, is uh, is of of capturing that aspect. You know, leaving the Soviet Union out, uh, but capturing that aspect of uh, European and American interactions, where hairstyles from and music from England and fashion from uh, from Paris and and movies from Italy and Paris and books from Germany arrive in the United States is Arthur Marvick's uh, Cultural Revolutions about uh, Europe in the United States in uh, in the late 50s uh, and until I think the early 70s, or late, late 60s, early 70s. Um, and as I was reading that book, practically, you know, it, it would discuss a song or it would discuss a, a film and practically everywhere, I would think, oh my God, that was available very shortly in the Soviet Union. Oh yes, this was also, you know, this was also there in the Soviet Union. This was also translated, um, and so I was beginning to see how, at once, the Soviet Union, how Europe and the United States uh, interacted in a non, uh, not in a unidirectional way, but in a, uh, in the sense of broader exchanges uh, and um, sort of cross-cultural exchanges, uh, creating a certain transnational space for. You know, really, the kind of world we know today, um, and uh, and how the Soviet Union was part of that process, um, and and that's what and and the Soviet part of the process is the story I tr I try to tell. I know I'm not answering kind of the Europeanness part of your question, uh, but but my goal was to put together European imports and American imports and show them in a different context in the Soviet space where um, the the American imports did not have, I don't think, had the kind of centrality, uh, a singular centrality. They were central, but uh, likewise, other things were central too. Um, the kind of singular sole centrality that we ascribe to it, we here writing from the United States, you know, writing from um, our own perch uh, in the United States. Um, and and it, it was important for me to capture that world. That was Eleanor Gilbert, an assistant professor of history at the University of Chicago. Her new book is To See Paris and Die, The Soviet Lives of Western Culture, published by Harvard University Press. I'm your host, Sean Guillory, and this is the SRB Podcast. The SRB Podcast is sponsored by the Center for Russian, East European, and Eurasian Studies at the University of Pittsburgh and listeners like you. If you enjoy this podcast and want to help support it, Please take a moment to share it on Facebook and Twitter, like my Facebook page, Sean's Russia Blog, write a review, or recommend the show to your friends. The SRB podcast comes cheap, but it is not free to make. You can help support it by joining the table of ranks at srbpodcast.org. Thanks to all my high excellencies, high wellborns, and noblenesses for your continued patronage. And you can find past shows on iTunes and SoundCloud, or you can download them directly from srbpodcast.org as well. Until next time, bye.